In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues and the many paths of knowledge, all our steps on the path of omniscience. May these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. O Manjushri, please accomplish this. Good evening, welcome back from Samadhi. We'll continue with uh, our exploration of the luminous heart, the third karmapa, on consciousness, wisdom, and Buddha nature. Does anybody remember the additional homework assignment and uh, that we talked about last week in class in addition to the readings? Was it about absolute bodhicitta slogans? No. No? No. Meditating on mind only. Thank you, Christopher. And I did it. All right. And it was it was amazing. I really I said, okay, I'm gonna really do this, right? <laughs> going through it. And I was like, I'll do it, you know, five minutes. You know, and everything just disappeared. And I looked at my clock and I was like, that was fifteen minutes. You know, like when we meditate, I know when 30 minutes is up. Or you know when. And I was like, I just did that for 15 minutes? That was like, yeah. <laughs> That's great. Anyone else try it? Actually try taking the view that everything is mind? Uh, mere, mere cognizance? Wow. Oh, and we do this all the time? Yeah. <laughs> wow, 19 people here, 18 in addition to me, and only one of you did the homework assignment. I oh, think we have to do no, this again. I was trying to do it. But I forgot <laughs> it was a homework assignment. I was just doing it from the reading. I thought that was just our normal practice. <laughs> Is that really your normal practice, to view everything as mere cognizance? Try it. It doesn't necessarily work. Okay. Yeah. Well, cool. So uh, we'll go through the material, and uh, maybe those of you who haven't tried it yet can try it as we go through the material. Maybe it's hard to do two things at once, or maybe it isn't two things at all. And uh, I would love it if you would uh, try it for the following week, for the next week, and then we can talk about it further next week and then we'll come back at the end of this class after we go through the material and talk about it a little bit emily um hold on can you guys hear me yeah okay yeah um can you describe in like two sentences how we should consider this meditating on pure cognizance as different from the vipassana practices that we went through two classes ago because they feel very they feel not identical to me but i'm having a hard time sort of figuring out how they would be different cool uh let's see um 
just briefly, what were the Vipassana practices that we went through? Um, the one, in, or what I'm particularly thinking of is like uh, opening the frame of reference and then going through the process of analyzing like where is sight, like where is the visual sense? Is it in the mind? Is it, where does it come from? And kind of wearing that out as far as you can and resting in that and then doing it for hearing and then doing it for all the senses and consciousness. Because um, those, that process I've been doing quite a lot since that class. And what this material is describing, it feels like related, but not, I think what you're describing as this homework assignment would not be exactly the same process. Yeah, maybe not. I think not. So that's great. I, I appreciate it that you framed it so clearly uh, by by comparing it to that scheme and asking how they relate. And rather than like me, well, well, let's let's go through this material this for the today, and then let's come back at the end if we uh, hopefully we'll have time. I think we will to talk a little bit about like what it is and how to do it and, and so forth. So like, as you pet your cat tonight during class, is your cat mind? <laughs> okay, so uh, we're at the bottom of page 27 of this wonderful book sort of an amazing book and it's like okay wow this guy writes this amazing book and it'd be like okay cool this guy's pretty amazing but he's got like 12 books like this that he's put out it's just like phenomenal just one of these would be like huge <laughs> okay enough of that um so tonight we're going to go through two schemes that are important schemes in the uh, understanding of the Yogacara worldview framework. One is the different aspects of, of uh, cognizance or, or the cog cognizer, i.e. the mind, the subject, the perceiver. And, and then the other, the second one is the different qualities or aspects of the object of the uh, of phenomena that we experience. So first we go through sort of the subject side of the equation, and then we go through the object side of the equation. And uh, just briefly, last week we explored a little bit the, the idea of mind only after going through some other stuff about Yogacara in general compared to Madhyamaka and other Buddhist traditions. And um, this idea that mere cognizance does not uh, mean that everything is in my mind or everything's created by my mind, but it's more the, the uh, quality that matter and mind are not two separate things and that the experience we have we all experience of like being a, a being in a certain world realm 
is an experience of the um, experiencer or the quality of experiencing and to think that there's something more in terms of the duality of perceiver and perceived is not supported by any evidence whatsoever. So it's not like idealism in the, in the Western sense. Okay, so the first one is the different uh, aspects of the mind, the different layers of the mind, known as the eight consciousnesses. And um, it starts with, on the bottom of page 27 in Yogacara texts, false imagination. So the incorrect way of experiencing our experience, or way of understanding our experience as having the dual dualism of apprehender and apprehended and um, all of the other complexities that come with that. As the most general term for mind's deluded mode of operation is further divided in several ways in terms of its various specific functions. In all of these cases, and this is also true for most other notions such as the skandhas in Buddhism in general, it cannot be overemphasized that what is described by this scheme or by this terminology of false imagination. And uh, he's really talking about this, the, uh, the, the several ways that it's divided, that false imagination is divided. It cannot be overemphasized that these are dynamic processes and not any kinds of static entities or states. Right, and so this is the the uh, comment really upon the Abhidharma schools and the Abhidharma sort of framework or mentality of understanding reality experience as being made up of discrete entities that interact with each other in in specific ways and uh, result in the experience that we have, the creation of experience, such as view, you know, thinking that the skandhas, that uh, there's like specific little entities of form uh, in terms of atoms, feelings, in terms of uh, different mind moments of feeling and, and discrimination and concepts, as if they all like, like the, the mind exists in the 51 mental factors, like in and they're spread throughout our brain or our body or our mind or the universe somehow. And there's like a ping pong ball that goes around and bounces off all the different 51 mental factors. And the ping pong ball is our attention. And uh, so that would be a highly simplistic way of viewing the universe. And, and the Abhidharma schools did this initially in what was a, an amazing step of deconstructing the main strategy or of ego, or rather the main mistake that occurs in false imagining, which is thinking that uh, the, the uh, composite entities that we experience exist as we experience them. Tables, chairs, trees, rocks, and so forth are 
truly existent. And so the Abhidharma breaks that down. Just the science, uh, Professor Science breaks it down into atoms and parts and energies and, and so forth. And so uh, the question is like, how, do, how does our, our conscious experience relate to the true nature of phenomena? And how does it distort it? You know, understanding that what we experience, and the we is a little bit questionable, but let me just start with uh, what we, what is experienced without projecting a we is is an extrapolation uh, performed, bless you, by the complex system of our nervous system that. It, uh, interacts with phenomena inside and outside our body. And by the way, you saw that there was a, a Nobel Prize awarded to two scientists who who uh, did a, some advanced research on understanding how our bodies, how our um, sensory systems, in particular touch, converts external stimuli of pressure and heat into the perception of those, you know, and like I've tried to read a little bit about it and I went from like the very, you know, opaque article that doesn't really tell you anything, um, except that the guy had a good quote. He said, sometimes it's the, it's the things, the simplest things that we take for uh, granted that occur in our world or our experience that turn out to be the most complicated. You know, so how does how does our sensory system convert external stimuli into conscious experience? And um, in in uh, along with that, somehow our uh, our physiological makeup ended up uh, contriving all sorts of add-ons to the situation. You know, there's bare perception. And then our, our conceptual framework adds a me and an it and all sorts of opinions about them and so forth. Okay, I, I digress. Thus, when Yogacara speaks about two, three, or eight consciousnesses or three natures, five wisdoms, three for five. What, what is it? Three for five, five and five for a quarter? One, one, anyway, um, three kayas, for that matter, they in no way mean two, three, or eight distinct minds, or even just static properties of some single mind that has these different parts or aspects. Rather, different numbers of consciousness stand for different functions of that mind, all of which operate as momentarily and permanent and changing processes, like constantly moving, changing, and interacting currents in the ocean. That's a nice analogy. Um, none of which is truly existent. Madhyanta Vibhaga, which is one of the five dharmas of Maitreya, the uh, discrimination, Vibhaga, between the middle, Madhyan, Madhya, and the extremes, Anta, speaks of mind displaying as all kinds of seeming expressions in terms of subject and object. Consciousness arises as the appearance of reference. 
So here's cognition only described in a certain way. Consciousness arises as the appearance of reference. Sentient beings, a self, and cognizance. But it does not have an external referent. There is actually no external referent. There's only the appearance. Note, note the term appearance, as in the Madhyamaka tradition, the focus is on, or, or the result or conclusion of the, the exploration into the true nature of reality, is that uh, experience is experience of mere appearance. There's ultimate truth of, of complete non-implicative emptiness, and the relative truth is mere appearance. And it's, it's really not that different from mere cognizance. Mere cognizance is the experience of appearances, but it does not have an external reference. Since that does not exist, the external reference, it, the mind, the consciousness, does not exist either as a discrete, real, separate entity. Further, Madhyanta Vibhaga 1.9 specifies the subjective side of this further, and this is the, the lead into the eight consciousnesses. The single one is the conditioning consciousness. The remaining entail experience. So the single one is the Aliya Vijnana, is the conditioning consciousness, the foundation. And the remaining seven is what we experience. Experience, delimitation, and setting in motion are the mental factors. So these are the three evolutions. So thus, there are two main kinds of consciousness first, in the first two lines. The single one is the conditioning consciousness, the remaining entail experience. So there are two main kinds of consciousness. The alia has the most basic ground of mind, and then the other seven consciousnesses that operate out of this ground and engage their respective objects which are also nothing but aspects of this basic ground. A little bit of a Buddhist, you know, switcheroo there. According to the Madhyanta Vibhaga Basha, which is the commentary on it by Asanga, the Aliya consciousness is the conditioning consciousness because it is the foundation of all our consciousness, which entail experiencing their respective objects. So the Aliya Vishnana conditions or taints or provide, it's like the context, the operating system, the mode of engagement between the other consciousnesses and their objects, their um, imagined objects. Uh, let's see. Among mental factors, feeling refers to pleasant, unpleasant, and different experiences. Um, and he, for some reason he uses the term feeling, uh, but then he says pleasant, unpleasant, and indifferent experiences. So the word experience appears in the third line of the quote from the 1.9 in Madhyanta Vibhaga, right? Experience delimitation. So experience is correlated with feeling. Discrimination delimits, so that's the delim delimitation, the characteristics of objects. And the other mental factors set consciousness in motion to engage in objects. So it goes through um, uh, the, th the second skanda feeling, the third one discrimination, and then the fourth one samskaras, conditioning factors. And uh, it began with 
consciousness, the fifth skanda. That presentation, that, that things start with consciousness, may be reminiscent of uh, a book by Chögyam Trungpa Rinpoche called uh, Glimpses of Abhidharma, where he presents the five skandhas from a Yogacara point of view. It's a very difficult book because of that. And he presents form as consciousness. It's very confusing if you don't understand this point of view. Vasubandhu's Trimshika. Oh, and I need to write myself a note. So this is a famous text by Vasubandhu. We, we saw last week in the list of huge list of texts. It's the 20 verses. And uh, Carl here quotes it extensively in this introduction. And I asked him if he had a, um, a translation of the whole thing that I could share with you. And sure enough, he sent it to me immediately. So I need to share that with you. I'm sorry, I forgot to. So this text by Vasubandhu is like one of the main texts that presents this whole system of the eight consciousnesses. It presents a threefold model of the dynamic evolution or display of samsaric mind. And earlier when I said the three evolutions or the three phases, this is what I meant. I, I said that phrase too early, sorry. Mind's behavior in terms of self and phenomena operates in many different ways. In the modulation of consciousness, <clears throat> operates in many different ways in the modulation of consciousness. This modulation of consciousness is threefold. The three modulations of our consciousness. Maturation what is called thinking and the cognition of objects. That's the first one here. I'm sorry, those are the three. Maturation, what is called thinking, and the cognition of objects are the three modulations. Here, maturation is the alia consciousness, <clears throat> which contains all the seeds. What operates by resting on the alia consciousness is the consciousness called mentation. And that's uh, equivalent to thinking, which has as its focal object, which has it, sorry, I'm sorry, which has it, it being the alia consciousness, as its focal object, its nature being self-centeredness. So it's uh, centered on itself, which is the, the alia consciousness, vijnana. It is always associated with the four afflictions, which we'll come to, and obscured. It was always obscured, yet it's neutral. Cynthia? I just wondered, it's not, we often talk about the seventh consciousness as the one that's self-centered. So I just wondered how that relates to this. <clears throat> that's what he said, isn't it? It's nature being self-centered. Yeah, I just wondered whether that that's if the first one was the Alia Vijnana, the second one, it, the way it's described, it almost sounds like it's what we often refer to as the seventh consciousness. The yes, yes, it is. I'm, I'm okay. sorry if that was not clear. Yes, okay. This, I thought the it was the Alia Vijnana again, and I. That, no, yeah, I, I, I'm sorry, I was unclear. So, uh, what operates on it is called mentation. Oh, thank you. I, I blew that. Sorry about that. That's the seventh consciousness. Manas, Mano Vijnana. 
uh, sorry, not mana vijnana, the manas. And um, it's obscured, yet it's neutral. The seventh consciousness is neutral. It's not inherently tainted. This is the second modulation. The third is the observation of the six kinds of objects, i.e. the six consciousnesses and their objects. This Vasubandhu's three basic modulations of consciousness are the alia consciousness, the afflicted mind, and the remaining six consciousnesses, the five sense consciousnesses and the mental consciousness. In Yogacara texts, these are also referred to as the triad of mind, chitta, sem. You may find the Sanskrit and Tibetan of these terms helpful to um, identify them here and then to identify when you see those terms come up in other contexts. Um, they generally relate to this scheme one way or another. <clears throat> Mind, chitta or sem, mentation is manas, and consciousness is vijnana, namshe respectively. As for the eight consciousnesses, they're described in detail in these texts below, which also provide copious quotations. So to highlight some of the essential features here, the alia consciousness is nothing but uh, the sum total of the virtuous, non-virtuous, and neutral tendencies that make up the mind stream of ascension being, i.e. the storehouse consciousness. That is, it's not like a container separate from its contents, but resembles the constant flow of all the water drops that are labeled the river. In other words, there's no other underlying permanent substratum or entity apart from the momentary mental impulses that constitute this ever-changing stream of various latent mental tendencies. Due to certain conditions, mainly the stirring of the afflicted mind, the seventh, comparable to starting to stirring by a wind or strong current, various momentary appearances of subject and object manifest. What seem to be external objects, internal mind, and the sense faculties, or both, are not so, but just different aspects of the Alia consciousness appearing as if close or far. So, this odd presentation of these, these three modulations as being, on the one hand, uh, sort of elaborations or different types or, or phases or levels or aspects of our consciousness, and at the same time, really not being different from the Alia consciousness in this interesting way. Um, but just different aspects of the Alia consciousness appearing as if, close or far, right after each moment of this dualistic interaction of subject and objects, the imprints created by them merge back into or are stored in the Alia just as waves on the surface of a river emerge from and re-emerge into it every time interacting and crisscrossing with other such waves and thus changing the overall current. So normally uh, our mindset is that something has to be one way or the other and it can't be both. But uh, those uh, in uh, the uh, exploration of the physics, I believe, we have begun to hear about people telling us that uh, light, for example, is both a particle and a wave, which I find really frustrating, but similar sort of thing. Um, Henrietta. 
When he says appearing as if close or far, does he mean internally, externally, or what? Yeah, he, mean? he uh -huh. means internally, externally, or literally close and far, or uh, 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 sort of uh, metaphorically close to the Aliyah Vijnana, like the seventh consciousness, or mm -hmm. far from the Aliyah Vijnana, like the objects of sight and sound and so forth. And mentation is thinking, but is that con conceptual mind? Yes, conceptual mind is in, is that, yes. That's not the, the sense faculties. Right, the sense faculties uh, are not part of that scheme. Yeah, well, the sixth shares in it, so we'll, we'll come to that. Okay. In the, actually, in the schema of the three things, in the third one, was that, I think you said it was the six kinds of objects, so that would mean the sixth consciousness was in the third? That's correct. Than, yeah? That's so correct. it's actually... So mentation then is that self-centered thing, but is not the same as the sixth consciousness. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. So when you say concept, uh, it sort of spans seven and six. This does not mean that the Ali actively creates anything. You know, so this contradictory thing of these things, these seeds and the appearances being in there, but they're not really created. It's just the, the dynamic network of various causes and conditions, which are not different from the Alia, interact, which is otherwise known as dependent origination. In this way, it's said to be equivalent to fundamental ignorance and the karma accumulated by it it being the Ali Vijnana, thus serving as the basis for all appearances and experiences in samsara, which at the same time represent the sum of all factors to be relinquished in order to attain nirvana. Thus the Ali consciousness fully ceases to exist only upon the attainment of Buddhahood. It does not cease to exist at the path of seeing the first Bhumi the first experience of so-called enlightenment or liberation, only at the stage of Buddhahood. As the Lankava Avatara Sutra and others say, because of all of this, it is not to be misconceived as an Atman or an uh, eternal self or a creator. The afflicted mind is simply another expression for mind not recognizing its own nature. Technically speaking, it is the consciousness that solely focuses inwardly. We're talking about the seventh now. And thus mistakes the empty aspect of the Aliyah consciousness as being a self. Mistakes the, the reflective quality of the, of the empty Aliyah Vijnana as being a reference point as being where it came from. And its lucid aspect, the, the, uh, the appearances that appear in it as being other, it is said to be so close to the Aliyah that it misperceives it in this way, very much like when one cannot see a table clearly or even recognize it as a table when it presses one's eye um, against the table against the service surface. Usually we think we're, that not seeing or recognizing something is due to being too far away from it. But as in this example, the afflicted mind is the most fundamental case of not recognizing something due to being too close to it. So this is where I get 
I'm getting confused. It seems like he's saying in these ace consciousness, there's a deluded self inserting in there, but there is no self in all this stuff. I, I, I'm not clear. Is there a self in one of these ace consciousness or is that just a delusion arising out it's, of these? It's a delusion arising out of these. Okay. That's what I thought he was saying. <laughs> There's, there is no self. There is no self. Right. There, there is the no, which makes sense because there is no self. Right. Yeah. So you have to, you know, you know that from uh, basic Buddhism. And therefore, when you approach this context, you know, don't let any of this mistake you into thinking a self is being presented. But instead, it's the mistaken view of uh, of there being a, a me or a perceiver that is the essence of that seventh consciousness here called uh, the afflicted mind or mentation. Uh, this is the studying, starting point of fundamental subject-object duality, which then ramifies into the appearances of the remaining six consciousnesses and their objects, all, all of them being constantly filtered and afflicted through this basic self-concern, constant self-reference -ref point, self-centeredness, ref uh, reflexive. Thus, these consciousnesses are always accomplished by the three primary mental afflictions, desire, aversion, indifference, as well as countless secondary mental disturbances based on these afflictions, irritation, and so forth. Karmic actions, trying to obtain what seems desirable and get rid of what seems not, ensues, inevitably, leading to various kinds of suffering sooner or later. Thus, the wheel of samsara spins round and round. Asanga, in his Compendium of the Mahayana, describes this mentation as follows. Among those consciousnesses, mentation is twofold. Since it is the support that acts as the immediate condition, the mentation, which is any consciousness that has just ceased, is the support for the arising of consciousness, i.e. the current moment of consciousness. The second is the afflicted mind, which always congruently which is always congruently associated with the four afflictions of the views about a personal, a real personality is one. These are the four afflictions. The view of a real personality, self-conceit, attachment to self, and ignorance. This is the support for the afflictedness of consciousness. Thus, consciousness is produced by virtue of the first aspect of mentation as its support, while the second one makes it afflicted. Mentation is a consciousness because it cognizes its objects. Since it is both immediately proceeding and self-centered, mentation has two aspects. This aspect of immediately proceeding is very confusing, and this is probably the first time you've heard this presented, or at least in this way. So for now, we're going to just like puzzle over it, and, and gradually we'll come back to this over and over again, this idea. Uh, Rob. So I just want to make sure I'm clear on this. Mentation in our sixth consciousness is the thinking, the chatter, the words in a row. And then another aspect of that same mind, which we're labeling the seventh consciousness, assumes it's responsible for all that chatter and that it is the chatterer. 
Is, is that sort of what's happening? That's the description of our experience? I think that's great. I think that's a really good description. Say it one more. Uh, uh, so there's so a mind that's chattering. It's just talking about stuff. It's getting it's getting input from all the senses. You know, oh, red, orange, hungry, one, and and then uh, another aspect of this mind, which we're labeling the seventh consciousness, is ignorantly assuming it's responsible for for all that chatter. Yeah, so um, that may not have been totally clear, but but basically the thinking mind has these two aspects. On the one hand, we see things and we we uh, think about them. Oh, that's a nice table or a nice chair, or that's my table or chair. And then there's the underlying thinking mind that's thinking, um, I'm the one experiencing this moment. Right. right. I, I, I just ran across a bunch of humorous um, Jewish takes on Buddhism. And uh, w one of them, which reminds me of what we're talking about right now is, if there is no self, whose arthritis is this? <laughs> yes, these have been around a long time. <laughs> you could share that with us. There's like a whole list of them, right? That would be helpful. It's always good to have some good Jewish humor, Buddhist, it's, Jewish Buddhist humor. Uh, Cynthia. One, one question related to that schema that we were just talking about is that, is the seventh consciousness saying it is the self, or is the seventh consciousness the one mistaking the Alaya Vijnana as the self? It's it's both. It, it's mistaken the Aliyah Vijnana as the self, but it thinks that it's the it, it thinks it is the Aliyah Vijnana. And in a sense, since they're really probably, I mean, these distinctions are really sort of constructs anyway. It's sort of true that so one aspect is basically saying thinking this other aspect, which is really all part of the same ocean. Right. Right. Exactly. Right. I mean, if mind is like space, you can't really carve out, you know, a seventh over here, you know, and, and this is, a, it's, I mean, it's, there's no there there. So we're, how are you going to divide it up? Right. But, Yet we do just for the sake of describing these. Right. I mean, we're putting, we're making these conceptual imputations, but it's a dynamic, it's a dynamic process and there isn't a division. So Derek, do they ever get, do they ever let go of the eight altogether? Other than in, let's say, Zogchen, maybe. <laughs> but, I mean, it seems like these constructs stay like... Zogchen uses the eight consciousnesses scheme. Conscious, in Zogchen, they find it very helpful uh, yes, way of understanding the experience. But it's like, you know, in the beginning of the... Earlier in the class, you were sort of tossing out the Abhidharma as a useful thing, but, you know, have to go beyond it. So do they, I mean, I've never seen that they go fully beyond the eight consciousnesses yet, as Rob and I were just saying, in a certain sense, those are also mythical as well. I mean, in, you know, when he said no mind, no, you know, no eye, no ear, no nose, no. They just, they, it's just a matter of how you view the eight consciousnesses, but they all do use that scheme of uh, usually eight, sometimes six in the earlier traditions. But it's just a matter of like, do you think that they're real or not, or are they the manifestation of the f the five wisdoms and the and the five kayas sort of thing? Right. I guess those do get mapped. I've seen that. 
the mapping of those. That's true. Yeah, there's a map for those at the end of the book. There's a chart. Right. That has that chart. Yeah, I think Trongu has that in his books too. Thank you. Thus, so I'm back to Awa Gale. So could you think of the seven consciousnesses as moments of experience within the space of the alia? I think of the alia as being inactive, it just being a neutral space that doesn't have a job. Other yes, yeah, yeah, keep going. Um, and the seven consciousnesses are um, the active um, ones that act within it and upon it. Right, within it. It, it, it one moment at a time, whatever right. job their function is. Right, and each moment you have some combination of the seventh consciousness plus one or two of the sixth consciousnesses. Right? And the strength perhaps that they have are based on their habits. What do you mean by strength? Well, the seventh would affect the thinking and the behavior by its habit? By its well, yeah, so you mean like the strength of egoistic framework? would be yes, based on habit pattern and, and how, uh, how uh, far along the path of undoing that a particular sentient being is or not. Yeah, something like that. And then, so but the alia is just kind of a, a, the space and it doesn't do anything. Yeah, sometimes it's referred to like, um, there's a text called the Sada Mahamudra, and it's the environment. There's the environment, and then it's inhabitants. Mm-hmm. So the Aliyah Vijnana is the environment, and then the seven are the inhabitants. Yes, thank you. But then doesn't, doesn't the Aliyah Vijnana, by being the so-called storehouse, it's not just space, right? Isn't it also where all the habitual tendencies so-called reside? Which she didn't say it was empty space. She said it's the it's it's not okay. active. She said it's not active. Okay, I, I just so I she meant she meant space metaphorically, and it's the space within which things occur. A very full space. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think of it as my own personal trash island. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's a treasure trove. You can think of it as a trash, a trash place, or uh, a treasure trove. Uh, Thus, just to finish this up, we have Carl's gloss on this. Thus, the part of mentation that is the afflicted mind constantly entails a set of four subtle afflictions, which were on the top of the page, uh, having the view that there's a real person, self-conceit, that that uh, person actually is something, and uh, attachment to this self, and then fundament, and then uh, ignorance about reality. Um, The part of mentation that is the afflicted mind constantly entails a set of four subtle afflictions. Uh, So these are like uh, aspects of the uh, cognitive veil or obscuration to enlightenment. There's there's the emotional veil or obscuration and there's the cognitive one. 
just as is the afflicted mind itself, these four are largely instinctive and unconscious, sort of like pre-conscious or non-conceptual or subconscious. With any conscious thinking such as, I am so-and-so belonging to the conceptual part of the sixth consciousness, which superimposes more conscious and coarse layers of ego clinging. So the more uh, structured part of mentation is the conceptual activity of the sixth consciousness, which, uh, let's see, which superimposes more conscious and coarse layers of ego clinging, more details, uh, based on the gut-level sense of me that constitutes the afflicted mind. So we have this division between the sort of gut-level um, belief in a self or fixation or, or tend, uh, um, tenacious, tenacious clinging to a self, and then we have the more elaborate version. And this refers to innate and acquired um, obscuration. The innate obscuration is preconceptual, sort of, he calls it unconscious, and it's there that it travels from lifetime to lifetime unchanged, other than by the path. And the acquired sense of self is what changes lifetime to lifetime and grows throughout the life and acquires different clothes and uh, habits and uh, all sorts of things. Being a consciousness, it is moreover constantly associated with the five neutral, omnipresent mental factors. So every moment of consciousness has these five neutral, omnipresent mental factors, what are, what are called omnipresent because they accompany every moment of consciousness. And mental factors are not like, uh, you know, they are the first five of the 51 mental factors. If you want to locate these in your conceptual framework of the mind, that um, they basically reside in the sixth consciousness. And um, every moment of mind has these five plus another five that are called the object determining, and then some, some uh, uh, combination of what we might call emotionally oriented mental factors. Uh, Henrietta. Well, I just find it interesting that we're sort of going back to, <laughs> you know, the structures that were set up in, in uh, the Abhidharma. And yeah, so what's the difference? Well, right now, I'm not seeing a huge difference. I mean, I guess he's laying them out, or they're laying them out um, to be, um, I'm not sure. Yeah, so the, the, main, the, main, the main difference is that there's an Aliyavijnana. The Abhidharma does not have an Abhidharma. Right. It does not have the environment. It doesn't have the the foundation consciousness idea, um, which is still a framework, you know, in terms of of having this structured static world. Right. Uh, But then the other. I find that interesting that that we're 
dealing again with this very tight structure. Right. The the only so the the only uh, real difference is that external objects are not uh, separate and real and separate. They're not external. Mm-hmm. This, so, and that the it's a difference in the skandhas. There's no form. Right. There's no first skanda. Uh huh. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so there's these uh, mental factors, impulse, which is uh, sort of the. Um, stand in for form in terms of the skandhas. Impulse is the the imagination of there being something that gave rise to a sense impulse. And then there's feeling, the second skanda, discrimination. And then uh, in the fourth skanda, we have contact and mental engagement. As it, uh, he says, let's see, the Alia consciousness also is is constantly associated with these five neutral mental mental factors, since the Alia consciousness is a consciousness. But there's there's basically no moment of Alia consciousness without the other consciousnesses. There's always Alia, eighth, seventh, and then one of one or two of the six consciousnesses. However, this. Despite being accompanied by these four afflictions in itself, the afflicted mind is neutral in the sense of being neither virtuous nor non-virtuous. So it's afflicted, but it's not. Um, it's afflicted by those the the uh, wrong views, but it's not virtuous or uh, benevolent or unvirtuous or sort of evil. And he goes on to describe, uh, give an example of this. Let's see. Let's look at the next paragraph. As for the term mentation, despite being primarily used for the afflicted mind, which is the seventh in Yoga Chara text, it is also generally used for the mental sense faculty, the sixth consciousness, and in, in, it, in which case it's equivalent to the immediate condition. Again, we'll come back to this immediate condition. Um, it is generally used for the mental sense faculty as well as the sixth consciousness. That's confusing that he's separating the mental sense faculty and the sixth consciousness. We should, we should talk to him about that. Matters are further complicated by text. So he gives, he gives uh, various complications or elaborations of the way these two things are used differently. But I'm going to skip these. And on the top of 33, after going through this complicated uh, exploration of the different uses of this, he sort of sums it up a little bit. He says, thus mentation, this odd term, of the sort of activity of mind, mentation can either designate the mental sense faculty, which equals the immediate condition, uh, the afflicted mind or the seventh consciousness as consisting of both the afflicted mind and the immediate condition. That was not very helpful, sorry. (laughs) That just confuses things further. Um, yeah, but that's sort of what I'm talking about, in, in, in that when when the seventh consciousness arises with mentation, it thinks that it's doing that. 
there's there's something more that uh, we'll get to in this term immediate mind yeah. which which is used here and then by Wang Zhongdorje and Tronger Rinpoche also so no, let's get to 34. Tronger Rinpoche uses that one too I recognize that yes yeah that's a confusing term so let's look at 34 and and skip that level of confusion and just focus on the main ideas of the eighth consciousness as, as being the manifestation of three sort of levels of maturation or mo sorry modulation or evolution of consciousness from this completely um, open every uh, contains everything alia vishnana to the ego consciousness of thinking that there's a, a self the seventh consciousness and then the sixth consciousness is as being the perceivers of objects the five sense normal sense consciousness is having a clear sense of objects even though they're not externally existing and the sixth consciousness is having as its object um, thoughts the objects of thoughts so Henrietta quickly Henrietta there's a footnote yes 80 which kind of goes yes. into the immediate mind yeah read it. yes uh what page is 80 on well i i have the digital oh you have the so digital. no help <laughs> i can read it if you'd like 407 yeah read that note though that the explicit term immediate mind seems to be a later tibetan term it does not appear in any of the texts by maitreya asanga or vasubandhu or any other Yogacara texts as I have consulted. For more details on this specific topic, see the introduction to the third Karmapa's view below. He further divides mentation into the afflicted mind, the immediate mind, and pure or stainless mentation. <laughs> I don't know. Okay, so we'll come back to this. It's a later elaboration, and it, and it, it just... It confuses things because it sort of spans the seventh and the sixth in this odd way. Uh, but the main thing is just to get the, the understanding of these eight. So on page 34, the first full paragraph, there's not much to say on the remaining six, except for the sixth one being explained as twofold in the teachings on valid cognition of having these two qualities in the pramana that's clarified in the pramana tradition. These two qualities are, one, the more commonly known thinking mind, and two, what is called mental valid perception. The thinking mind and then mental valid perception. The latter, mental valid perception or mental valid cognition or, or mental direct valid cognition, the latter refers to the part of the sixth consciousness that is like the five sense consciousnesses in that it is able to directly perceive sense objects such as visible forms upon being triggered by a preceding moment of sense consciousness such as a visual consciousness so there's this idea that while the, the five sense consciousnesses are clearly and very simply and uncontrovertibly in uh, unarguably direct non-conceptual perceivers of their objects the eye consciousness uh, non-conceptually perceives colors and so forth 
there's part of the sixth consciousness that can non-conceptually, i.e. directly perceive color as well. So it, it like sort of channels itself through the sixth, through the sense consciousnesses and directly perceives objects without conceptuality. Right. Now, now, just one, one, one last thing quickly. Um, all of these non-conceptual consciousnesses are still filtered through the seventh consciousness, subtle um, afflictions of those four views right of there being a self and so forth i'm sorry alan no just um to add that i believe that's what trump Rinpoche meant when he described that function as the switchboard that brings in the perceptions of a sense consciousness into one's experience cool yeah hey, the switchboard but, <laughs> Uh, these, let's see, um, together with the five sense consciousnesses, mental perception represents the outwardly oriented consciousnesses, while the thinking mind, and the thinking mind is the other aspect of the sixth consciousness, and by thinking we're automatically talking about conceptual mind. While the thinking mind focuses on more or less conceptual mental images, which may or may not be triggered by preceding sense perceptions, such as seeing, reading, hearing, and then thinking about it. So the sixth consciousness has these two aspects. Um, in general, it is said that the sense consciousnesses and the mental consciousnesses are unstable. That is, they do not operate at all times, such as when being fast asleep. The afflicted mind, the seventh and the alia consciousness, are stable. They continue to operate even during deep sleep and coma. However, in certain meditative states, even the afflicted mind temporarily sinks back into the alia consciousness. So uh, deep meditative states such as uh, cessation, uh, sensation, absorption, trance, and so forth. Um, but re-arises from it. Once one arises from such meditation, which is how they 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 assert that there's an alia consciousness, because when uh, arhats and so forth go into cessation trance, when their minds are not happening, they come out of that trance and they think they're the same person. You know, how can that possibly be? And they have the same, and they have have remember all the things that they went through before the trance. So somehow there's some connecting consciousness, which the Abhidharma folks never really, uh, they, they gradually develop this idea of what they call the Bhavanga, which is a dance movement famous in Southeast Asia. And they took that over as being the continuity consciousness that uh, happened when they're in between uh, thinking or active consciousness, there was an inactive consciousness called the Bhavanga. Um, in general, it said that, let's see, I read that. In a way, the Ali consciousness can be understood as referring to nothing but the ever unimpeded underlying stream of the vivid clarity aspect of mind. Otherwise, mind would be like a stone or would have to be switched on again out of nothing upon waking up in the morning, coming out of a calmer deep sleep.
Several texts by Parama artists speak about the Amala Vishnana, pure or stainless consciousness as a ninth kind of consciousness. It refers to the unconditioned, changeless, permanent mind, unaffected by any impurities, identical with suchness as the ultimate. And this is equivalent to the idea of Alia as being separate from Alia Vishnana and is what is described by Trungpa Rinpoche when he goes through describing rest in the nature of Alia, the essence, that slogan by Atisha. And he talks about the light bulb and taking it out of the projector and so forth. The Amala, Amala Vijnana is said to be the foundation of the Buddhist path, while the Alia consciousness is the foundation of all defilements and eventually eliminated. Parama Arta also equates this Amala Vijnana with suchness, non-conceptual wisdom in mind's luminosity. He says that it is unmistaken and free from both the imaginary and other dependent natures, which comprise the manifestations of mistaken consciousness, thus being reminiscent of typical Zhentong positions. Okay, so mind operates in three levels. He just introduced these these terms. At the very end there he said the imaginary and other independent other dependent natures. So now we're going to shift into this description of what are called the three natures idea in uh, Yogachar, which is a very important scheme for understanding uh how the Yogacara mind or framework understands confusion and liberation. And it's important not to think that these are different sets of phenomena, like there's some phenomena that are imaginary inherently, and there's some that are other dependent, and some that are perfectly uh, complete. But uh, all experience has these three options, depending upon how we engage in our in our mind so to speak uh, let's see so given the time I'm going to skip around a little bit see if we can get through some of this the three natures or characteristics are the main yogacara pedagogic template to explain minds operational modes when diluted and undiluted they are the imaginary nature the other dependent nature or maybe aspect is better than nature, and the perfected nature. Perfect. Uh, let's see. Skip that sentence. However, if one keeps in mind that all of these models describe processes rather than three clearly separate and fixed things or realities, those descriptions then are not contradictory. But the key is that all that... This scheme describes processes rather than three clearly separate and fixed types of entities. Starting from the famous quote from the Mahayana Samgraha, in one sense the other dependent nature is other dependent. In another sense, it, the other dependent nature, is imaginary. And yet in another sense, it is perfect. So you already see that there is like some... Uh, discontinuity or not logical use of uh, these three natures as being separate entities because they're already saying that one of them, the other dependent, can be either of the other two depending upon the situation. In one sense it is the other dependent, in another sense it is the imaginary, and yet in another sense it's perfect. So it can be all three things. In one sense 
is the other dependent nature called other dependent? It is other dependent in that it originates from the seeds of other dependent latent tendencies. In what sense is it called imaginary? Because it is both the cause of false imagination and what is imagined by it. In what sense is it called perfect? Because it takes, because it does not at all exist in the way it is imagined. So we have the same sort of confusing uh, way of describing things that we saw in the eight consciousnesses where there's this uh, mush, sort of uh, mushing around between eight, seven, and six. Okay, skipping the next quote. In this vein, the other dependent nature is the process or experiential structure in which the world presents itself as a seeming delusive reality for beings whose minds have a dualistic perceptual structure. And that dualistic perceptual structure is the imaginary nature. So the, the other dependent nature is the uh, fabric or the substance from which we develop imaginary an imaginary world or upon which we develop an imaginary reality the perfect nature is the underlying fundamental process or structure of mind's true nature and its own expressions as they are unwarped by said dualistic perceptual structure in more technical terms the other dependent nature is the basic stuff or substratum of which all our samsaric parents experiences and appearance consist it is the mistaken imagination that appears as the unreal entities of subject and object because these are appearances under the sway of something other that is triggered by the latent tendencies of ignorance The other dependent nature appears as the outer world with its various beings and objects as one's own body, as the sense consciousness that perceives them, the conceptual consciousness that thinks about them, as the clinging to perceptual self and real phenomena, and as the mental events such as feelings that accompany all these consciousnesses. So these are, this is the other dependent nature. It appears as all this other stuff. Thus false imagination is what creates the basic split of bare experience into seemingly real perceivers that apprehend seemingly real objects. The duality of subject-object, which is the imaginary, which is an imaginary way of perceiving that situation, does not even exist on the level of seeming reality, but the mind that creates this split does exist and functions on this level, i.e. the other dependent. However, this other dependent nature in no way exists ultimately, since Yogacara texts repeatedly describe it as illusion-like and so on, and also state it is to be relinquished, while the perfect nature is what is to be revealed. The imaginary nature covers the entire range of what is superimposed consciously or consciously by false imagination onto the various appearances of the other dependent nature. So the other dependent nature, you might say, is the real stuff. And then we imagine selves and beings and entities like tables and chairs and clouds on top of that. Down towards the, like, two-thirds of the way through this paragraph. What do you mean by the real stuff? That's uh, the dependent nature. Um, so two-thirds of the way through, it says, in detail, the imaginary <laughs> nature includes the aspects that appear as conceptual objects, such as the mental image of a form, 
the, the connections of names and, and their, uh, what they refer to, reference, the notion that a name is the corresponding referent, and the mistaking of a referent, like um, chair, uh, a chair, um, mistaking a chair for as being a chair, thinking that a chair is a chair. You know, so we have this idea that there are chairs, and then we sit on something and we think, oh, this is one of those. And we think we're sitting on a chair instead of the fact that we're just sitting on a chair. Um, all that is apprehended through mental superimposition. So we superimpose on, on the other dependent nature, all these ideas of there being things that have a certain way of being, uh, such as direction, time, outer, inner, big, small, good, bad, so on, and all non-entities such as space. All of these exist only conventionally as nominal objects for dualistic consciousnesses of ordinary sentient beings, but are not established as really extant. So on the next page, the perfect nature, however, is emptiness. In the sense that what appears as other dependent, false imagination is primordially never established as the imaginary nature. In the, let's read that again. The perfect nature is emptiness in the sense that what appears as other dependent, false imagination. So false, the false imagination of the other dependent is primordially never established as the imaginary nature because there's, it's completely imaginary. As the ultimate object, uh, we're talking about that the perfect nature is the ultimate object and the true nature of the other dependent nature. This emptiness called the perfect is the sphere of non-conceptual wisdom and it is nothing other than phenomenal identitylessness. It is called perfect because it never changes into something else is the supreme of all dharmas and is the focal object of prajna during the process of purifying the mind from adventitious stains. Since the dharmas and the noble ones are attained through realizing it, it is called dharma dhatu, by virtue of its quality of never changing into something else, it is called suchness, just as before, so it is after, that famous quote. Just as space, it is without any distinctions, but conventionally the perfect nature may be presented as twofold, the unchanging perfect nature or suchness, and the unmistaken perfect nature, the non-dual, non-conceptual wisdom that realizes that suchness. So uh, uh, so uh, conventionally there seems to be two aspects to it, the, the wisdom that understands it and the, the entity that is the perfect nature so to speak. At times, the perfect nature <coughs> is also equated with the luminous nature of mind, free from adventitious stains or Buddha nature. So you see that the objective of, of the way that these three natures is described is to try to mix up your mind so that you do not delineate them as three separate things. So that So they're constantly being uh, described in terms of the other two, 
each of them is described in terms of the other two, and it becomes this complete circular mishmash that's completely confusing, which is intentional, so that you get you 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 get for starting point um, some idea that there's these three aspects to experience that go on, and um, then when you see these described in action and in texts or in situations, so to speak, gradually they become clarified what's being talked about by how they're being talked about. But unfortunately, it's one of these very confusing things that's described uh, in a way that uh, is meant to um, make it very hard to pin them down intentionally. And that on 38... Um, Let's read the quote from the Mahayana Samgraha. Why is the other dependent nature taught in such a way as being like an illusion and so on in order to eliminate the mistaken doubts of others about the other dependent nature? Um, in order to eliminate the doubts of those others who think, how can non-existence become taught, become objects for those it is taught to be like an illusion? So he goes through this list of all these different analogies that describe why the other dependent nature is taught to uh, be um, not completely existent, not perfectly existent in all these different ways. And this is meant to just show that, that um, all of these are skillful means, all of these are different ways of explaining the emptiness of reality, that this is not a different scheme from understanding of emptiness, which is the constant project of this uh, whole scheme, as we'll soon see. And um, on the bottom of 39 in particular, and uh, before I read this, just this is me speaking. Uh, in this sutra, Samdhinar Mochina Sutra, first they present three natures in, a, in somewhat of a similar way to what we just saw, although more uh, briefly. And then they present the three non-natures as being the essence of the three natures, as a way of immediately removing any idea that that, that anything other than um, emptiness is being taught or explained. But in order to try to explain that the three natures are a way of expanding our understanding of emptiness of the, as explained previously in the form of the two truths and that nothing else is being uh, asserted. There's no reality that's being asserted. So more specifically, the Samdhinirmochana's famous seventh chapter speaks at length about the lack of nature in terms of characteristics, that's the imaginary. The lack of nature in terms of arising is the dependent. And the ultimate lack of nature as representing the, the which is the perfect, as representing the imaginary other dependent and perfect natures, respectively. The ultimate lack of nature is the perfect. Um, let's see, on the next page... The first full paragraph in the middle, 
rather it has to be interpreted, interpreted in, in the correct way, this presentation of the three natures, which is accomplished through the threefold lack of nature as presented in the Samdhi Nirmochana Sutra. I'm sorry, I, let's start with this, this whole paragraph. In their discussion on establishing the Mahayana Sutras as the words of the Buddha, these uh, Vasubandhu in a certain texts, he defends the Prajnaparamita Sutras against the charge of nihilism. So he's writing a few hundred years after Nagarjuna, maybe maybe 200 or so years, maybe 250 after Nagarjuna. And probably there's a lot of people trying to attack Nagarjuna as being nihilistic or nihilistic, however you say that. So uh, Maitreya, Asanga, and Vasubandhu are trying to go about explaining why Nagarjuna's understanding of the of the nature of reality is not nihilistic by expanding the, the, the scheme that's used to, to present the different aspects of the reality that we experience. Um, but point out that this, these sutras themselves critique nihilism as the activity of Maras and that their key notion, lack of nature, is not to be understood literally in the sense of nothing existing at all. Rather, it has to be interpreted in the correct way, which is accomplished through the threefold lack of nature. The threefold lack of nature. Not the three natures, but the threefold lack of nature. Um, as presented in this Psalm, the Nirmochana Sutra in particular, the lack of nature, all phenomena, must be clarified in this way in order to relinquish the extremes of superimposition, which is, uh, is um, implying that something is there when it's not, i.e. thinking that there's a self when there's not, thinking that there's uh, self-nature to phenomena when there's not, and then denial, asserting that there is nothing there that there is no, nothing at all going on and that therefore karma is not real. Undermining karma is denial. Um, that is, in order to prevent childish beings from clinging to the existence of the imaginary nature on the one hand and prevent those who do not understand when just the main points are being discussed from clinging to the non-existence of these phenomena whose nature is to be inexpressible. So on the one hand, um, for beings who cling to the true nature of so-called phenomena, he presents the imaginary nature, the idea of there being of all those so-called things being imaginary. All the different phenomena we experience and think exist are imaginary. And on the other hand, uh, prevent people from clinging to non-existence of phenomena whose nature is to be inexpressible by pointing out that there is an inexpressible nature of phenomena and that that's what Nagarjuna was pointing to by refuting the, the, the existence of an intrinsic nature and phenomena. He was pointing to the intrinsic, sorry, to the inexpressible nature, but he didn't express it. And so Maitreya, Sangha, Vasubandha are expressing that there is an inexpressible nature called the perfected, completely perfected nature. Um, let's see. On the right-hand side, 41. 
actually, let's skip further. On page 42, so we have this quote from Vasubandhu's 20 verses again. Based on the three kinds, or Trimshika, based on the three kinds of lack of nature. The lack of nature of the imaginary, the other dependent, and the perfected. Of the three kinds of nature, it is taught that all phenomena are without a nature. The first one. The imaginary lacks a nature in terms of characteristics. There are no characteristics. There's nothing that possesses a characteristic. The next one lacks existence on its own. It's called the other dependent. It doesn't exist on its own. It's dependent on other. So all it is is um, the, the constant reliance on other. And the following is the lack of nature as such. It's, the, it's just the complete lack of nature, complete emptiness. And uh, let's see, Stiramati uh, tries to explain it, but I'm going to skip to uh, Carl's explanation of that that starts on the top of 41. And we'll, we'll finish through. Up of where? Top of 41, uh, 43, I'm sorry. Thank you. In brief, just as, in brief, <laughs> little joke, right? Just as when mistaking the moving colors and shapes in a movie for a storyline with actual persons with all their emotions and so on, the imaginary nature stands for the illusory display of dualistic appearances that actually do not exist in the first place, let alone have any characteristics of their own. Therefore, it's called the lack of nature in terms of characteristics. Just as the mere movement of said shapes and colors on the screens, the imaginary, the other dependent nature consists of dependently originating appearances, which means that they appear in an illusion-like manner. There's um, interdependent arising is basically an illusion-like arising because you can never pin down uh, where one thing arises from another and how, nor that there's anything that arose from any other thing. So interdependent arising is the definition of illusion-like appearance. Um, but are without any nature of their own and do not really arise. Thus, because there's no thing that arises. Thus, the other dependent nature is called the basic lack of nature in terms of arising. The perfect nature is the ultimate lack of nature, which has two aspects. First, although there is no personal identity, the perfect nature is what functions as the path that remedies the notion of a personal identity. Just as an illusory ship can be used to cross an illusory ocean, it serves as the means to cross the ocean of samsara to the other shore of nirvana, which is nirvana. In terms of dependent origination, this remedial or path aspect is actually contained within the other dependent nature, but since it is the cause for realizing the ultimate, it is included in the category of the ultimate lack of nature. The second aspect of the perfect nature is the one by virtue of which enlightenment is attained through actively engaging in it, and is undifferentiable from phenomenal identitylessness like space. Space that is omnipresent and not established as anything whatsoever. 
just as colors and shapes and moving nothing but this display of photons ultimately unfindable this aspect is the ultimate lack of nature per se note however that while the madhyamaka system greatly tends to speak only about the objective side of this ultimate lack of nature meaning meaning that which is ultimately lacking in nature the yogacara tradition also emphasizes its subjective side the experiencer of that in other words the lack of nature or emptiness is not just limited to being something like the bare fact of said photons being unfindable but there is an awareness or experience of this very fact needless to say for yogacharas too the true realization of the ultimate lack of nature also entails the emptiness or unfindability of that very experience but any realization of this has to happen in the mind it's not just an abstract fact like a mathematical equation at which no one looks. Fundamentally, all phenomena, including one's mind, have always been, are, and will be empty. But this fact alone makes nobody a Buddha unless it is made into an incontrovertible, all-pervasive and personal experience of balance, freedom, and compassion, and is as natural an outlook informing all one's actions as it is for ordinary beings to experience themselves in the world as real dualistic and suffering. Uh, let's see. Regarding emptiness understood in terms of the three natures, Mahayana Sutra Alamkara by Maitreya says, if one knows the emptiness of the non-existent, likewise the emptiness of the existent, and also natural emptiness, then this is expressed as really knowing emptiness. Carl explains this on the level of seeming reality, the imaginary nature is just nominally existent. So that's the emptiness of the non-existent, the first line. While the other dependent nature is substantially existent in the sense of what conventionally performs functions, that is the emptiness of the existent. The perfect nature does not exist in any of these two ways, but is the ultimate incontrovertible state of mind experiencing its own true nature, and that is the natural emptiness. Again, by definition, this personally experienced wisdom is in itself completely without any reference points, which as it, uh, such as it existing or not, for these reasons, the imagination nature is also called the emptiness of the non-existent, the first line, the other dependent, the emptiness of the existence, and the perfect nature of the ultimate or natural. Thus, as mentioned above, the three natures not only accord with the Prajnaparamita Sutra notions of emptiness and lack of nature, but moreover serve as progressive stages on the transition from utter delusion to the undiluted wisdom of a Buddha with all its qualities. And so, skipping the quote, he says, just as in the case of the notion of the Chitta Matra above, the three natures are to be practically and progressively engaged as the Bodhisattva path, which each one to be transcended by the following one. So first we understand the, the uh, emptiness of the imaginary, and then we understand the um, uh, emptiness of the dependent, and then we understand the natural emptiness of the perfected. And let's see, on the bottom of 46, Rob. So basically, this is a report card from the cushion. Thank you. It's a practitioner-oriented understanding. 
Uh, let's see, so on the bottom of 46, that's one of the main reasons for speaking about the three natures and the other dependent nature in particular is to count for the process of mind progressing from its mistaken state of freedom, which as far as the Buddhist path is concerned, takes place within the dependently originating structure of the other dependent nature, realizing the non-existence of the imaginary nature and revealing or becoming immersed thereby in the perfect nature instead. Thus, from the perspective of the path, the imaginary nature is to be known for what it is, utterly non-existent. The other dependent nature is to be relinquished in the sense of mind ceasing to create dualistic appearances. And the perfect nature is that which is to be manifested or realized, which is just the true nature of the first two natures. Once the other dependent nature ceases to project the imaginary nature. <laughs> so this is how it maps onto the path. And, and this is the practical guidance of like, of what we do with this scheme, of how we understand this scheme in, in the report card from the cushion. Um, in other words, in terms of the Buddhist Can path. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I was, a, I was a little confused by the uh, de other dependent nature being said that which must be relinquished. Because we don't, it doesn't mean we really have to relinquish all of the phenomenal world. I, is it saying we just have to relinquish that part which is making uh, mistakes arise? Like we just have to relinquish that which needs to be relinquished? I, I think it's more than that. I think it's that we have to relinquish the the idea that it, the, it exists as it appears. You know, what you're referring to is abandoning what needs to abandon and right, cultivating yeah. what needs to be cultivated. But I think this is more talking about relinquishing the whole idea that there is something to be abandoned and cultivated. Uh, relinquishing that whole idea of cause and effect. Uh, which even after we've seen through the imaginary world, we still might get caught up in the cause and effect of the other dependent world and the way it operates. I think so. We might oh, get okay. attached that, to the to the path. Yeah, that makes I think sense. So. Thank you. I think so. Uh, let's see. Skipping to the end of this paragraph, it says this is what is called a fundamental change of state. So this uh, shift that occurs um, to go back, in other words, in terms of the Buddhist path to what I was reading and, and stop. Um, the delusive complexities of the blah, 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 big word, more fragile structures of the imaginary nature and the other dependent nature can be reduced or collapsed into the underlying single, big word, stable structure of the perfect nature, which is simply uncovered and this is the fundamental change of state and and that's the, the main presentation of this let's see there's one more couple more good parts in between what he does is there's this famous opening paragraph to this text by Maitreya called the Madhyanta Vibhaga which starts off with this very confusing statement False imagination exists, duality is not present in it, but emptiness is present in it, and it, false imagination, is also present in emptiness. Hugely comp uh, confusing statement, but he goes on for a few pages, he gives Stiramati's explanation of it, and then he gives his own explanation of that. But let's see, he sort of sums it up 
in on the top of 51. He says, in the second par sentence there, rather, he says, this, meaning the whole scheme of, of what's presented in these four lines, is further clarified in Stiramonti's comments, where the being of the non-being of duality is described as the characteristic of emptiness. The being of the non-being of duality is the characteristic of emptiness, which is neither existent or non-existence. Emptiness is not existent because of the non-existence of duality, nor is it non-existent since the non-existence of duality exists. So he's describing the perfect nature. Uh, um, Derek, where are you? I'm on the digital version, so. Yeah, I'm on, let's see, one, two, I'm on the sort of uh, halfway through the second paragraph after the model four. You see the, the four models? Yeah. Uh -huh. So after the four models, there's the second paragraph starts with given the explicit okay. objectives, and then I'm towards the end of that paragraph, that, uh, yeah, paragraph. Okay, thanks. Um, nor is it non-existent since the non-existence of duality exists. The non-existence of duality exists. In other words, emptiness is not just the sheer absence of apprehender and apprehended, but constitutes the true mode of being of all phenomena. Emptiness is also neither the same as nor different from false imagination. If it were different from false imagination, it would not be its nature. And if it were the same, it would not be the sole pure object that is conducive to liberation. Is that in a sense the way of saying what the Heart Sutra says? Yes, this is like a, exactly form is emptiness, emptiness is form, form is no other than emptiness, and emptiness is no other than form. So you have these, these two schemes that are uh, descriptions of our experience within the context of this uh, overall overall view of merimentation of mind only of non the absence of uh, separate external objects what is the eight consciousnesses and how um, how uh, we sort of build up <coughs> in every moment an experience of there being a, a subject and a real and separate object that sort of comes out of you know we, we say well how do uh, where does all this stuff that we perceive comes from you know when we talk about mind only some of the major problems are well where does all this stuff come from how, and uh, you know how do I dream up all this stuff that I experience and the idea is it, it resides in our Aliyah Vijnana, so its potential is already there, is, is present in our mind stream from beginningless time. And then the other one is, how do we all experience, <coughs> we, don't, we don't know if it's the same, and there is no objective sameness to what each of us experience, since we're not proposing that there's an actual um, uh, entity that exists there but when we talk about things and, and when, when we function on things we appear to experience things in the same way we experience similar things in a similar way and so that comes about by the fact that 
um, uh, we all share uh, the uh, the history of a similar Aliyah Vishnana that results in our being born in a um, with a, a mindset that experiences this and um, there's zillions of other beings an infinite number of other beings that exist in other universes where uh, and in some and those other beings and universes have different sort of mind schemes or alia vijnana schemes and beings uh, you know f uh, birds of a feather feather flock together so we all have a certain historical um, Aliyah Vajnana preconditioning us to be born in this dreamlike world. And so we all, uh, we all experience, you know, we, you say, well, why do we all experience the same thing? That doesn't make any sense if everything's our mind. And the reason is because we're all having a similar dream. And all the people who have a similar dream, it's not like somebody like put us all together, but we put ourselves together because we all have a similar dream. So we're all in the similar dream. And there's other beings who have a totally different dream from ours, but are a similar dream to many other beings. And so they interact with beings that have similar dreams to them of their particular universes where there's all sorts of different features to their world. Octopi, they have their own Ali Vishnu. Yeah, yeah, squids and so forth. And um, and then the three nature scheme is this idea that <coughs> uh, we say that the Aliyah Vijnana, one, one way of understanding the other dependent nature is that the Aliyah Vijnana is the other dependent nature. So it's sort of like the stuff. It's like at one point, uh, one of the persons that we read statement said it's substantially existent it exists um, as the basis of uh, of its own imputation and um, um, so the Aliyah Vijnana is the stuff of our experience and that uh, gets shaped and formed by the different the three sort of levels of modulation into people, places, and experiences. And we wrongly imagine that those are real separate things. And um, so we when we understand that, we experience the emptiness of the imaginary nature, the imaginary nature being the belief that that uh, there are things and perceivers of things and the emptiness of the other dependent nature is realizing that the other dependent nature that stuff has no entity and that therefore just like Nagarjuna because things are empty therefore they're they're interdependently arisen therefore they appear only what is empty appears um, and so everything that appears is empty Everything that exists is empty, and only what ex is empty exists. And, uh, and then the completely perfected nature is the true nature of the other dependent situation, of the, the um, 
uh, what you might call the Alia or the Amala Vishnana is the basically um, in terms of our our usual um, it's usually helpful to locate something sort of geographically or conceptually and in, in this case we can locate the uh, completely perfected nature in the Alia or the Amala Vishnana, the, the pure Vishnana. So what do you guys think? Any any thoughts on that whole all of that stuff? Is that confusing enough? <clears throat> I know I know most of you, if not all of you, have heard these schemes before, the three natures. You know, we and so we all come to this with a certain idea of what these things are and um and I think you see that as you read more about it, they become more confused. <laughs> Which is not necessarily a bad thing. It's maybe a frustrating thing, but it's uh, it's it's certainly not unexpected from the author's point of view that they're going to confuse us. And I, I, I suspect it sort of feels like they know that they're confusing us and they're having fun. You know, um, I find uh, this at the end of this uh, segment, he talks about this pivotal versus progressive. Yes, that was cool. And, yeah. and I find that helpful. The pivotal. Yeah. It's like way, reality can go one way or another. Yeah. The other dependent nature can either be confused as being really existent yeah. and that's the false imagination, or it can be understood to be empty, dependent, arising interdependent arising and then it's the perfected nature and the, and the progressive nature the progressive scheme is like is one level building upon another you know which which carl presented earlier in a, in a number of ways of like understanding that i live in a in a world of false imagination when i'm preoccupied with me and you and so forth and then um thinking that well there's some underlying stuff that's 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 the ground of existence that's that's separate from all the false imagination is the next level to overcome of thinking that there's some foundation to our our existence that there is some some sort of uh, basis beyond uh, that underlies the false imagination and we have to actually give that up and uh, so there's this this uh, somewhat common misconception or or idea of uh, of chittamatra being separate from yogachara and there were later developments of uh, these schemes in india and also a lot in china that people call chittamatra mind only tradition to diff and uh, and then the tibetans who inherit um, the Indian tradition in its sort of later elaborations. You know, Buddhism went to China very early on, first century, and then it, it kept going, you know, up until like the 6th, 7th, 8th century. But it it uh, took root in China and developed its own, you know, its own uh, sort of um, thing. Like by the 6th century, um, there were these major translators and teachers 
in China who came from India and then of uh, Chinese origin as well. And they created their own schemes and they were very much like this Chittamatra view. And the way that the Yogacharans try to distinguish themselves from the Chittamatras, they say that the Chittamatras have a subtle clinging to the dependent nature as having some sense of, uh, of reality. Of looking at, they look at the dependent nature and think, well, the dependent nature, when it's stripped of the imaginary nature, is the perfected nature. And so it has some sort of real entity to it because it is really the perfected nature. And the Yogacara school goes the next step and says that, uh, that the dependent nature is completely non-existent as well, completely empty. And the perfected nature is not the purification of the dependent nature, <clears throat> but is the emptiness of both the, the false imagination and the dependent nature if that makes any sense. But hopefully we'll see that uh, the rest of the book, Rongjin Dorje and Carl and his footnotes, will, will be explaining how mind and world work, and Buddha nature as well, interestingly. One of the main texts in here is again a, a text on Buddha nature, a very famous text, presentation on Buddha nature, of how these work uh, within the context of the eight consciousnesses and the three natures and mind only. And so uh, hopefully through through going through it uh, a number of times and uh, applying it to different schemes, we'll gain a, uh, or maybe I will gain a better understanding of it, so I'll be able to explain it better. Laurie. I can't find the part that I really liked. <laughs> but, but, but that always was, happens. But there was something about um, having to let go of the even the past, but we need the past, but we have to let go. You know, it was somehow the way he wrote it. It was really interesting, and I can't find mm, it at all mm. now. <laughs> yeah, that is one of those conundrums. That without the path, you can't get anywhere, but you have to let go of the path as yeah. well. And that was sort of what Eric was was talking about earlier. But we're drastically over time. Oh, Brock. Did you say there was some kind of practice that we should be doing? I missed it last yes, week. yes, 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 right. So uh, the homework is to try to actually take seriously this idea of mind only, of cognizance only, and, and try to, uh, for starters, understand what that means experientially, and then after that, try to experience it. And the the presumption that I spoke about was that normally we look at uh, mind only as being like a stepping stone to true understanding of emptiness. And we don't really give it, we, we only give it sort of lip service. But I'm suggesting trying to actually really experience what would it be like if everything is mind only? And what does that mean? So then, then uh, next week when we come back, the idea is to share how did you, how did you generate that feeling? You know, because to, to practice it, you need to come up with some scheme, some way of explaining it or doing it. So what, what do you do? Uh, how do you do that to yourself? Emily, you already tried this. So what do you come up with? <laughs> 
Well, I just had one thing I wanted to share when I think about this, which is I try to imagine what the universe would be if there was no, not a single mind anywhere. And so it's like trying to imagine the universe with no mind at all. Bare matter. matter. And there's not a single animal or human or any other kind of mind anywhere. What would that universe be? So it's like doing the reverse is just kind of an interesting exercise to get in the zone. Doing the opposite. Yeah, that's great. Go to one extreme and then the other extreme. That's great. (laughs) And so then you have to like practice being a a rock or a a non-mind phenomena. And then like what is a rock if there's no mind anywhere to conceptualize that rock? Then what even is a rock, you know? (laughs) Or a rock. Or a Brock. Or a Brock. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. That's great. Well, on that note, why don't we conclude with our dedication uh, by this merit. May all obtain omniscience. May it defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death. From the ocean of samsara, may I free all beings. By the confidence of the golden sun of the great east, may the lotus garden of the Rigdon's wisdom bloom. May the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled. May all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks. Good night. Thank you. Good 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 luck with mind only. Rock you rock. You rock. <laughs> Thanks.